First, though, we start today with the war in Ukraine. We are now entering the third week of Russia's brutal invasion. Civilian casualties are on the rise. The humanitarian crisis is getting worse. More than two million people have fled the country now. Ukraine continues to plead for that no-fly zone over Ukraine. Close the Ukrainian airspace to Russian jets and bombers. I've got former BC Premier Ujjal Dasanj standing by to discuss that. First, have a listen to this. This is Kira Rudik, who is an MP in the Ukrainian Parliament, uh, making the case for a no-fly zone. Have a listen. I do believe in my heart that at some point, the no-fly zone, this or the other way, will be given to Ukraine, because I don't see any other resolution to this. However, we are paying for this time, for this procrastination, with our lives, with our blood. That's a member of the Ukrainian parliament there, pleading for that no-fly zone. She believes it will eventually come, but maybe too late. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ujjal Dessange, the former Premier of British Columbia, the former Attorney General. Uh, Canada's former Minister of Health. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ujjal, thank you for coming on today. Good to be with you. Okay, Ujjal, you've been making the case on social media and elsewhere for the no-fly zone. First, let me get your take on the war on the ground right now in Ukraine. What are your thoughts on the the tragic situation we're seeing unfold here? Well, you know, I I haven't specifically made the case for a no-fly zone, but I have been uh, basically um, expressing my frustration um, it, but because um, obviously the world is allowing um, Putin to indiscriminately uh, kill Ukrainians um, by bombing, uh, whether from the air or tanks, uh, artillery. Um, and and the world is frozen in a way. Yes, we are sending all kinds of assistance uh, um, uh, to Ukraine, uh, but we're not anywhere near protecting them at all. And this is nuclear blackmail uh, that we're allowing Putin to exercise over the rest of the world. He has actually caused the world to be frozen in their in their in their steps. Um, And, you know, I, I, I don't see a way out at this moment myself either. I'm frustrated. But the nuclear disarmament regime that has been in place is in tatters. And, you know, Anyone like Kim Jong-un could uh, tomorrow uh, blackmail uh, uh, any other country like South Korea. Uh, what are we going to do then? I think these are issues that are very, very important. I'm frustrated like everybody else. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I come from the left, but I've been saying, where is the CIA when you need them to knock this guy out? <laughs> right. Speaking to former BC Premier Ujjal Dessange, taking a look at your, your tweet from earlier this week, so sad that the world is allowing Russia's nuclear blackmail and genocide in Ukraine. Hashtag close the sky, Ukraine. Uh, close the sky. Let's talk a little bit about that. How would that work? I thought it was very interesting to see a coalition of very high-profile commentators in the United States yesterday signed an open letter calling for a, a what they call a, a limited no-fly zone over Ukraine to protect uh, corridors for refugees to escape, for example. Is that, is that something that you think that should be considered? I, I think that should absolutely be considered. If we can't even do that, then what can we do? Then, as I said, anyone with a nuclear weapon 
could blackmail the entire world. And that's what's happening right now. We should consider that. We should actually be considering something like the Berlin-style um, airlift that happened during the Second World War, um, after the Second World War. And I, I think that that's so important for us to, us to uh, consider. Otherwise, you know, uh, the powerful can always uh, mutilate the weak as Russia is doing right now, and, well, and we're watching. Well, is it nuclear blackmail, or is it a, a legitimate nuclear threat that the world faces from Putin? I and mean, this is a guy who's got like 6,000 nuclear warheads at his fingertips, and well, he's put but, his nuclear arsenal on alert, and he's basically th- he's threatened the world if, if you oh, go in there with a no-fly zone. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, I don't see much distinction between nuclear blackmail and nuclear threat. I mean, you you do nuclear blackmail by threatening nuclear attack. So, you know, I don't see the distinction. However, um, the world has come to this. Uh, Ukraine wanted to be a member of NATO several years ago. The West uh, dilly-dally didn't do it, um, didn't beef up their defenses. And now we're faced with this crisis. So we're to blame. I'm speaking to former BC Premier Ujjal Dessange. Ujjal, let me uh, play another clip here for you. This is U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking earlier this week when he was asked about that no-fly zone. Have a listen to what he says here. The no-fly zone, to be very clear about what that involves, is that means that if uh, Russian planes violate the zone that's declared, we shoot them down. And that runs the, uh, the considerable risk of creating a direct conflict between uh, our countries uh, and Russia, and thus a wider war, which is in no one's interest, including in the interest of the uh, Ukrainian people. Right. So he says that if you if you do this, if we call Putin's bluff here, maybe this this war spills over the borders of Ukraine into a wider war in Europe and beyond. And that's in nobody's interest. That's the nightmare sim- scenario that's bad for everyone, including the Ukrainian people. Do you disagree with them? I disagree with them to the extent that if it spirals into a nuclear conflict, obviously that is absolutely horrific for the entire world, including the Ukrainian people. If it doesn't, then uh, Russia is checked. To that extent, I disagree with them. I don't know. I don't have the intelligence that they have. I don't possess that. I'm simply expressing the anguish and the frustration that most Canadians and most people in the world feel right now. Right. Last question for you, Ujjal. When, when we, we all see this tragedy fold, unfolding in front of our eyes right now, do you think Canada should be doing more? The Prime Minister is in Europe right now. Uh, Canada has announced a, a lot of sanctions against Russia. The, the screws have really been tightened here on the Russian economy. I think it, it appears to be having an impact. Could Canada or the rest of the world be doing even more, though? They should be. I think Canada should be beefing up its own military as well. It's been neglected for a long, long time. We need to we need to make sure that we can defend ourselves. And if we uh, strengthen our military, uh, then um, then we can assist Ukrainians with all the weapons that they need. Ujjal, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the war in Ukraine right now. There was some disappointing news out of Turkey earlier in the day in Istanbul where there was hope of a breakthrough. We saw the highest ever meeting 
uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the foreign minister and the Russian, uh, Ukrainian foreign minister and the Russian counterpart had a meeting. There were hopes for a ceasefire coming out of that meeting. There had been some analysts have been taking a close look at some of the things that Putin has said the last couple of days and wondering if maybe there was a glimmer of hope there. Uh, the meeting ended with not without any progress on a ceasefire. Have a listen to this. This is the Ukrainian foreign minister here. We also raised the issue of a ceasefire, 24-hour ceasefire, to resolve the most pressing humanitarian issues. Uh, we did not make progress on this. Okay, the Ukrainian foreign minister is speaking earlier today. Let's discuss now with my guest, David Marples, professor of Russian and East European history at the University of Alberta. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. David, thanks for coming on again. Yeah, you're very welcome. Okay, how do we interpret the outcome of this meeting in Turkey? Like, I guess in some ways it's good that there's there's a, such a high-level meeting as it has at least taken place, but it seemed disappointing when they emerged from it. Yeah, it, clearly the Russia, Russia is not ready to make any concessions yet, and it's demanded um, that Ukraine, first of all, give up, um, and also give up its Donbass region, give up Crimea. Um, I mean, all, all these things are one-sided, you would say. Russia has not given up anything. And I think it's just a, a question of where the war is right now. That is that progress has been very slow, and Russia's re resorted to bombing uh, civilian buildings, such as the hospital in Mariupol, which uh, happened yesterday. And therefore, you're getting a humanitarian crisis, which it hopes will push Ukraine to, to give up the war. But in fact, in the field, uh, it's very much the opposite. Ukraine has dug in. Russia really hasn't got very far, and it's, it's got uh, nowhere near the capital, Kiev yet. Um, yeah. It's got to Kharkiv and other places, but, you know, not a lot of progress. Yeah, there was some hope heading into this meeting that maybe this was a sign, a glimmer of some hope here for some sort of resolution, or at least a, a ceasefire does not appear to be happening at this point. Like you mentioned some of Russia's demands, like Ukraine came out of there and said basically Russia called for Ukraine to surrender and Ukraine is saying, no, that's not going to happen. There has been this talk of this concept called the Golden Bridge for Putin. You give him an off-ramp, you give him a, a way out of this in some way that he can go back to Russia and try and somehow declare that he, he, he secured a victory in Ukraine. You give him that Golden Bridge to get out of it. And one of them might be some sort of declaration of neutrality from Ukraine. And I don't know, maybe some internationally sanctioned referendum on independence for these disputed territories in the East. Is that, is that like the way out of this thing that could be put on the table or is that even possible? Well, it, it could be, but I think, I think Russia is really waiting for the Europeans and the Americans to sort of cave in a little bit and push Ukraine to make concessions. And that is, you know, they will be willing to come to the table if it's worth coming to the table. Uh, so the important thing for the Europeans is to stand fast, keep the unity, and don't give in to these demands. Because, you know, if Russia gets one thing, it will, it will ask for another. And this is the way yeah. Lavrov operates as foreign minister. You cannot make concessions to these kind of people. And I think um, Ukraine clearly recognizes this. And this is why Ukraine is asking for escalation in the form of a no-fly zone over Ukrainian territory, um, taking the planes that Poland was willing to give, but the Americans are not. 
Um, so you're already seeing a little bit of a divide in Western opinion of, of how far to go, how far to stand up to Russia and what demands are fair and what are not. I mean, the fact is, economically, we've cut Russia off now. And there's banks have pulled out, um, businesses have pulled out of Russia, and Russia's not very far off becoming bankrupt. Do we want that to happen? I think probably that's the right way to go. I mean, if sanctions are going to work, this is the way to go. So I would say from the Western perspective, stand by Ukraine and don't give up on anything because Putin is not a person who really knows how to uh, negotiate. He just has his win or the other side wins, one or the other, and that's the way he's always operated. Speaking of David Marples from the University of Alberta, how badly would you say Putin has miscalculated here in this adventure he's embarked on? Like, it, it appears that... He thought there would be, he would secure a very quick and rapid victory. Uh, he calculated that he could withstand any Western sanctions. Uh, seems to have miscalculated the fierceness of the Ukrainian resistance at, at the start of this. He was telling the, the Ukrainian soldiers, lay down your arms and surrender. He, he, thought it, he thought this thing might look like it, thought it might be a cakewalk. Is this, did he like completely botch and miscalculate what was going to happen here, in your opinion? I think so. And, and I think he's living in the past and that if in 2014, when Russia took Crimea from Ukraine, there was no resistance at all. Right. And in the two major battles in the Donbass, in which Russia actually intervened directly, um, it was also almost a, a no contest. And uh, the Battle of Debaltseva, for example, in February 2015, and the earlier one, the Battle of Ilovaisk in August 2014, uh, Ukrainian troops gave up and, in fact, were massacred by the Russian troops after they'd laid down their weapons. But the, the army of Ukraine is much better today than it was eight years ago. It's got sophisticated weapons, and it's, it can match the Russians. And it's, it's fairly clear that that's the case. And what is even more important is the entire population seems to be behind them. Yeah. There's no will in, in Ukraine to give up to the Russians or to allow themselves to be occupied. And this, I think, is something that Putin really miscalculated. And there's no real way back now. That's the problem for him. He cannot go back to the, what it was like before the war. And no one will really regard him the same way uh, again in the West either. David, thank you for coming on with your thoughts and analysis today. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're always welcome, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about the war in Ukraine. Now, the civilian suffering there, continuing the refugee crisis, expanding. More than two million people have fled the country now. And we did see a very high-ranking sit-down between Ukraine and Russia in Turkey today. But sadly, it didn't seem to achieve much, uh, certainly not a ceasefire. Let's check in with Andres Kosakomp now, Chair of Estonian Studies at the University of Toronto. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show. Andres, thanks you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Andres, your thoughts on this meeting uh, in Turkey? There was, a, there was a glimmer of hope there. I mean, you've had, you had the Ukraine foreign minister with the Russian foreign minister for a sit-down. It, it didn't seem to go anywhere or achieve much. Your thoughts on what happened there? Well, I don't think there was any realistic uh, expectation that there would be any positive outcome from it. Uh, the only positive thing that we might have hoped for would have been some agreement on humanitarian uh, um, channels for uh, people to be evacuated or humanitarian corridors, but that didn't happen either. The only positive sign that we can take from this is that the Russians were willing to send their foreign minister to a neutral country uh, yeah. to, to meet with uh, 
the Ukrainian foreign minister. So it's a higher level than previous uh, negotiations had been. And the previous negotiations had been at the border with Belarus, which is actually a co-belligerent with the Russians against Ukraine. Right. I guess we get, we should take our hopes where we can get it. And if, if they're talking, that's, I guess, a good thing. But yeah, disappointing for sure. Is Do you think there is there any diplomatic way out of this? I mean, people have talked about this golden bridge idea. Give Putin some kind of off-ramp where he can get out of this thing. Maybe a, a declaration of neutrality by Ukraine is the way out of this going forward. Is that even possible at this point? Uh, no. No, after the, I think the West has been trying to offer Putin off ramps from the beginning, and he hasn't been willing to take any of them, and thus the sanctions have been piled on. And, well, if Putin responds by ending the war, then the sanctions could be removed. That would be an off ramp for him. But uh, he has shown no signs whatsoever of, of backing down. He's doubled down on all of his absurd claims about the demand to demilitarize and denazify uh, Ukraine, which would basically turn Ukraine into a, a vassal state, which would basically extinguish its, its sovereignty. So all these ideas of, uh, you know, if Ukraine would only issue a declaration, um, that wouldn't amount to much. Recall that, of course, uh, in 1994, when Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons, uh, then Russia... Um, the UK and the US guaranteed Ukrainian security. And now the Russians, of course, have, have violated that. So there's like very little, very little incentive for the Ukrainians to trust anything that the uh, Russians could possibly offer. Speaking to Andres Kosakomp from the University of Toronto about the war in Ukraine. Andres, let me play a couple of really interesting clips from an appearance by the director of the CIA, uh, William Burns, who gave some testimony in front of a congressional committee this week in Washington. And I thought this was in really interesting to hear what he had to say. I'll get your thoughts here. Here he is speaking about how Putin badly miscalculated what he was going to be able to achieve in Ukraine. Then I'll get your thoughts. Here's the CIA director. Putin has, has commented privately and publicly over the years that he doesn't believe Ukraine's a real country. He's dead wrong about that. Real countries fight back. And that's what the Ukrainians have done quite heroically over the last 12 days. Um, as you said, Mr. Chairman, I think Putin is angry and frustrated right now. He's likely to double down and try to grind down the Ukrainian military with no regard for civilian casualties. Yeah, it's a CIA director, William Burns, uh, speaking this week. Would you agree with that assessment that Putin seemed to he get he got a lot of stuff wrong here, it appears, on what would happen here, whether it was how quick he could achieve a victory here, how fiercely the Ukrainians would fight back, how damaging the Western sanctions would be? I mean, did he just completely botch this? I completely agree with uh, the clip that you just played and, and the sentiment there. Um, he, Putin has botched. I mean, he certainly was expecting that there would be sanctions. Uh, he didn't think that they would be so severe. And the yeah. reasons for this, of course, is when he invaded Georgia in 2008 and he invaded Ukraine the first time in 2014, that the sanctions were pretty mild. So they didn't serve as a deterrent. And of course, he was also banking on the Western countries to be disunited um, right. in the sense that the Germans and the French and the Americans and the British would not be able to stick to the same sanctions regime. And you have seen a bit of that when we've been talking about an embargo of Russian oil, for instance, which the Americans and Canadians have imposed and, and the Europeans haven't uh, yet. But certainly Putin seems to have believed his own propaganda 
that uh, the Ukrainian government uh, doesn't have the support of its people and that the Russian army would be welcomed by the Ukrainians as liberators. But instead, of course, this foreign invasion has unified Ukrainians against this uh, invader. And the more he commits these uh, crimes against humanity by this uh, indiscriminate shelling of of civilians, the more it is uh, increasing uh, Ukrainian resolve to resist. I watched an incredible video on social media last night of civilians in a Ukrainian city under Russian control just coming out of their homes and confronting these Russian soldiers and yelling at them, screaming at them, waving Ukrainian flags. And the soldiers are like firing their their automatic weapons into the air and they don't even flinch. They don't they they showed no fear at all of these Russian soldiers. So I wonder if that's another miscalculation by by Putin here. Like if he thought that he would be able to install some kind of puppet regime in there, would it even last in the face of this kind of resistance from Ukraine? Let me play another clip here for you from the the CIA director on this point and then get your thoughts. So this is William Burns here, director of the CIA. Have a listen. I failed to see and our analysts failed to see how he could sustain a puppet regime or a you know pro-Russian leadership that he tries to install in the face of what is you know, massive opposition from the Ukrainian people. Andres, your thoughts? Uh, absolutely, it's it's very courageous what these uh, Ukrainians have done in occupied territory. And and let me note as well that many of them are Russian speakers, native Russian speakers, the same people that Putin is claiming to go in uh, to protect as his rationale for the entire war. Um, which shows how absurd his justification uh, is. Um, so, and of course, Ukraine is a large country. After Russia, it's the sort of second largest country in Europe. So it's a big territory and population to, to cover. So, and Ukrainians have risen up before. In 2004, you had the Orange Revolution. 2014, the Maidan, uh, when Ukraine had democratically elected leaders who were uh, pro-Russian or under Russian influence, uh, Ukrainians have revolted against them before. So the idea that uh, Putin could control the Ukrainians via some sort of Russian puppet is a non-starter. Yeah. Let me ask you about the situation in Russia with the impact of, of these sanctions. I mean, you've got the the ruble now is basically completely cratered. Their stock market, I believe, is still closed. You have all these companies, iconic big corporations, saying they're shutting down operations in Russia, Visa, MasterCard. I mean, the screws have just been really tightened here on the Russian economy or these with these sanctions. Do you think that this could bring Putin down? Like, could there be a popular uprising in, in Russia? Or could there be, I don't know, even like a military coup? Could some of his generals turn against him? Like, is, is Putin at risk of, could this could this end him, possibly? Uh, Well, that would be the great irony of this, that Putin began the war with the aim of uh, regime change in Kyiv, but it could end up with uh, regime change in uh, in Moscow instead, where uh, he is uh, by the the population who rises up. But we don't really see any sign of that, though we see lots of protesters. But uh, usually in this sort of situation, it would have to be an inside job where some of the closest uh, security people around him decide that uh, he's taken them down this catastrophic, unsustainable path and that he's got to be removed. Uh, but there's unfortunately no sign of that yet. But that would be my hope that the only way to end this conflict is I don't think the Ukrainians are going to lay down their arms anytime soon. 
Andres, thank you for coming on with your analysis and your expertise today. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about that foreign fighters unit over there in Ukraine. Ukraine set up that battalion of international fighters to come and defend Ukraine, and uh, many people have answered the call uh, to do that. We talked earlier on the show about a Vancouver man. He's originally from Ukraine. He was been living recently in Vancouver. Uh, said he wanted to go back, help fight the Russians. His name is Ole Helenialyuk, and here he is speaking to Jill Bennett. Have a listen to this. Tomorrow in the morning, I'm flying to Vienna, Austria, and then uh, from Austria, I will I will be heading to the border. I will go to to, to my hometown, and then I will uh, join my friends who coordinate the supplies to the frontier. And uh, when I am called to serve my country, I will do this, of course. Okay, one of his first steps before his first stops before he headed to Ukraine was he went by the M.D. Charlton Company, which is a police and military supply company. Let's check in with the president, Alec Rosa. Hi, Alec. Thanks for coming on again. Good morning, Mike. Slava Ukraini and Haroyu Slava. I mean, glory to Ukraine and to the heroes of glory. I love it, Alec. Thank you for that. Let me let me ask you about Ole. I know you got to know him a little bit. He came by your place and got outfitted before he went over there to Ukraine, right? Yeah, Olaf came over uh, just after the insurgent happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, yeah, he came over. It was sponsored from the Ukrainian Catholic Church there in U.S. Minster. And they came over on the first ferry and uh, said, I'm going to Ukraine. I've got 12 suitcases to fill up. What can you do to help? <laughs> so, anyway, we filled up his suitcases full of uh, tactical black boots, full of... Uh, Clothing, gloves, knee pads, uh, tourniquets. Um, we outfit him personally with some body armor and uh, some clothing that he could take with him personally, legally. And, uh, yeah, so he went on his trek, and uh, I have been in touch with him. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I can tell you where, what's happened so far, if you'd like. Yes, please. What's, what, how's he doing? So he's doing well. His spirit's good. Uh, he's presently in Kolomia, the city where he's born. Uh, he's registered there and is attached to a local military base. He went through a medical exam yesterday, and he's fit to serve the Army. However, wow. they don't, they're not calling him yet because he doesn't have any combat experience nor military training, so other slots are full. So he's on a waiting list. Uh, he's working right now in a city there, uh, organizing more supplies because the Army is expanding rapidly, and they're lacking a lot of products. Just a lot of just basic products from medical supplies to clothing to ballistic helmets and armor and just everything. Uh, everything he said he received from my, uh, from my, my office or my stories, it was super useful. He sent me some snapshots of a few, uh, a few soldiers wearing the, the boots that we gave him, which were Magnum boots. Uh, they were waterproof and safety. Uh, but the news isn't very cheerful. Um, the Russians are continuing to attack. They just bombed a maternity hospital. A lot of civilians died. And they know they were shaping the army and preparing for more attacks. Um, you know, nothing was strong. The people are so encouraged, and everyone's working hard to help everyone. And like they said, we need the support of the West to win this, this battle or this devil against this devil. Uh, we need NATO to close their skies. This is not the war which so far, but otherwise, everything helps. And he said the official fundraising campaign for him there 
It's savealife.in.un donate. Savealife.in.un.en donate. Alec, you mentioned the. I think you said the no. I think you talked briefly there about the no fly zone. Is is that something you think NATO should do? No fly zone over Ukraine. You know what? I guess NATO. In my opinion, NATO's in a very very tough position. Yeah. Um, but I mean, unfortunately, this this the 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 casualties being inflicted are not coming from the ground primarily. They're coming from the air. And unfortunately, you know, as, as much as Ukraine's trying to defend itself, it only has so many missiles has only so many pilots and so many aircraft. So they're standing up the big fight. But if they could do the UN could do this, because in, in our opinion, Olaf's opinion, he's saying, like, the threat is to the whole world here from Putin. And um, we don't think he's going to stop in Ukraine. Hey, Alec, I just got one minute left. I know you have family in Ukraine. The last time we, we chatted, we talked about that. How, are you, how is your family, your relatives doing over there right now? Well, the good news is, out of an unfortunate situation, my uh, cousin Alexei that was in Odessa, uh, he did get his family out. He actually trekked for 20 hours uh, with his wife, his uh, wife's sister and son, his two daughters, and his mother and father-in-law, and they drove to the border of Romania, where they were greeted tremendously, and now the, the his wife took off with the car, and basically now they're safely uh, in Campania, Romania, and uh, the whole village is a small village, and there's uh, a few people that have taken the whole family in, and they are together, and they're in the process now for the girls and uh, and the younger son to get their work on their visas to get to Canada. So my cousin and myself were waiting to greet them. Hopefully, one day when they, the kids arrive to Canada. Unfortunately, um, Alexei had to stay in Odessa. And uh, he's alone, and I tried to call him earlier just before our call today, but there was no answer, so I don't know. All right, right, Alec, I hope your your whole family stays safe over there. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about those sky-high gas prices now. Man, you talk about pain at the pumps. It's brutal out there. A lot of people asking for help. A lot of people in the B.C. government sector pleading with the government, do something about these high gas prices. We got the highest gas prices in North America right now in Metro Vancouver. Also, the highest gas taxes. Yeah, we're the continental champion in that category too. Highest gas taxes in North America. All right. A lot of people are feeling the pain at the pump right now. Let's check in with Cody Green. Cody is the co-founder and CEO of Canada Drives, which is an online vehicle retailer. Hey, Cody. Hey, good morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. What are the impacts of these surging gas prices across the country right now, especially for purchasing habits for people who are in the market for a vehicle? Yeah, we've seen a pretty immediate reaction. Um, So typically when we see people uh, trading in their vehicles, it's a pretty even split of people sort of upgrading um, in the size of the vehicle or sort of downsizing, downsizing the side of the vehicle. But right now it seems to be going one direction. And it has to be that reaction to the price that the pumps are feeling. What, you mean like people are now switching to smaller vehicles? Yeah, that's what we're seeing. Uh, mm. So we're seeing a lot of people who are in those sort of bigger SUVs 
And even if they're not making a move all the way to a, a hybrid or electric vehicle, they're just saying, hey, I can be in a, a smaller, more fuel efficient car and I can save some money every week. I thought the, I thought bet- Canadian I thought Canadians love their their trucks, man. Like uh, I always thought that the Ford F-150, isn't that the number one selling vehicle in the country? It is. And so yeah. we're still selling a, a ton of trucks. I think this is every person sort of making those decisions for themselves is like, hey, is this 10 bucks a week for me? Or is this $50 a week for me? And sort of what's that breaking point where I have to make some of those bigger lifestyle changes? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of people love their trucks. They love their SUVs too, right? And, and those SUVs can suck, suck a lot of gas too. But is it is it tough? Like if people are thinking about, well, maybe this time I'm going electric or at least maybe I'm going to go hybrid. Are those vehicles in, there must be huge, huge demand for those right now. Yeah, we've seen everything from electric, hybrid, and again, just sort of that fuel-efficient category that the site traffic almost double in the last couple of weeks here. And so people are reacting to those fuel prices um, and, and trying to make those decisions. It's like, hey, is this the time where we maybe our second vehicle becomes a car, becomes an electric? Maybe we still need that bigger SUV for, for other reasons. Yeah. Is there still a shortage out there? I mean, we heard about the uh, the computer chips causing lots of problems, supply chain problems. Is there still a shortage of vehicles? Yeah, the supply chain challenges haven't been solved. And so uh, there's been a shortage of new vehicles. A, a study just came out of the U.S. and it was 82% of new vehicles are being sold above MSRP. Um, so putting a lot of price um, uh, pricing uh, challenges on the new vehicle prices um, for sure, and that supply oh. is sort of trickling down to the used as well. Oh man, yeah. So prices are going up across the board, new and used. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Speaking of Cody Green, he's the he's CEO of Canada Drives. For people, Cody, out there who are thinking like, how can I save a little bit of money at the gas pump? What about vehicle maintenance? Like I had, my buddy said to me the other day, check your tire pressure. You know, make sure your tire pressure is. Yeah, so that's a great place to start and probably the easiest one. If your tires are running a little bit flat, that's costing you fuel economy. There's just a sum of a lot of different little things that you can do. Like don't be using premium if your car lot can run off of regular um, make sure you're up to date on your maintenance. Like, is your trunk full of 300 pounds of junk that you don't need to be hauling around? I think it's the time to really take stock of sort of all those smaller habits that are they're adding up and even how you drive your vehicle. That heavy acceleration, the heavy brake, a much smoother drive is going to help that fuel efficiency. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about this amazing discovery in the Antarctic now that has excited the whole world. Scientists have found and filmed one of the greatest ever undiscovered shipwrecks 107 years after it sank. The Endurance, the lost vessel of the famous Antarctic explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton, been found on the bottom of the sea in the Antarctic. Amazing. I've got Dr. Ann Coates standing by. From she's a, she's a British maritime historian. First, have a listen to this report from ABC News. This morning, one of the greatest mysteries of Antarctica solved deep below the ice. More than 100 years after sinking, the ship, the Endurance, is finally found. 
In 1915, an expedition led by Sir Ernest Shackleton was making its way towards the South Pole when he and more than two dozen crew members became trapped by sea ice. The explorers staying aboard for as long as possible, but after 10 months, the ice crushing the sinking ship. These images taken by the crew as the ship was crushed were brought back and played in theaters. What happened next would become one of the greatest survival stories in history. The crew up against the brutal polar winter, living on ice drifts and eventually making their way to Elephant Island before being rescued. It lies 3,000 meters in one of the most unexplored bits of ocean bed on planet Earth. The sea is covered usually with a shield of sea ice. Okay, it's an amazing story. The videos that have emerged from the wreck on the bottom of the sea are, is just uh, mind-blowing. It's just awesome. Let's check in with Dr. Anne Coates now, British maritime historian and senior lecturer at the University of Portsmouth. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Dr. Coates, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, this is such an exciting story. How was this ship found? I guess the explorers, they knew the general area where it must be located. How did they uh, finally find it? Well, it was just um, very diligent persistence. They had um, the latest sort of technology in the, the Rove machine, which had been lent to them. So they were just quartering the, the ocean in the area that they knew it should be, and eventually they found it through persistence and technology and science. Yeah, it really is amazing, and the videos that have emerged from the discovery are just extraordinary. The ship itself looks like it's in, it looks like it's in pretty darn good shape. Would you say? Absolutely, and it's it's been preserved like this because of the environmental conditions where it is. I mean, three thousand meters. It's very deep water, it's very cold, and therefore no marine boring animals, uh, organisms have touched it because A, there aren't any in the Antarctic, apart from a few close to the surface in some places, but they, they just don't exist in these cold Antarctic waters. So there was nothing to, uh, to destroy the fabric of the ship. It's more or less been preserved as it was when it sunk. Yeah, it's just incredible the way it's been preserved for a century there at the bottom of the ocean. What will happen to this uh, the ship now, the endurance now? What what will happen to it? Well, it's a protected wreck, uh, you know, by international treaty. So nothing can be taken off it, and people can't go onto it. They can obviously they've obviously taken very detailed film, and they can see what's lying in the around the wreck. So they'll be able to, you know, forensically study these films in order to, you know, to make their conclusions and, you know, to, to draw some new information about how the ship was built, how it was modified and how it was damaged when it was crushed in the ice. What an exciting story for, for a maritime historian like yourself, speaking to Dr. Ann Coates from the University of Portsmouth. And we heard a little bit of the story of the endurance and uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton there in that news report we played from ABC News. Can, can you just expand a little bit on that? Like what happened with this 
with this ship? How did it how did it get stuck and how did it end up sinking? Well, it, it's really exciting to to use a shipwreck as a way into you know a past experience because the ship Shackleton was hoping to cross the Antarctic um, continent because he he'd already been to Antarctica twice before trying to reach the South Pole but didn't manage. So this was his chance to do something original and to cross the whole um, continent. Unfortunately, he, he couldn't because the ship, which had been built to withstand ice flows, but it hadn't been built to withstand being crushed, although it had a very strong hull. So the shape of its hull meant instead of being pushed out of the ice, it was crushed. And therefore, they were stuck. But really, the remarkable thing about the story is is not his failure to achieve the, the crossing of the continent, but his his 800-mile journey to South Georgia to bring help back to his shipwrecked men. So it, it's, it demonstrates his endurance, his determination, his you know, responsibility to the men. He couldn't just leave them. He had to do his utmost, and he did his utmost. So that is really the dramatic story about endurance and, and Shackleton. Yeah, it's a, it's a perfect perfect name for the ship, actually, isn't it, when we think about exactly. the story of survival. Ama- amazing. Exactly. Speaking to Dr. Ann Coates from the University of Portsmouth on the discovery of the endurance in, in South in, uh, Antarctica. Dr. Coates, when you first heard about this discovery and you first saw the film of the ship on the bottom of, of the sea, what went through your mind? What kind of feelings did you experience there when you saw that? Well, it's, it's magic. It's excitement. Yeah. You know, it's it's disbelief almost that the ship could be in such a perfect condition. And this is why shipwrecks are such magical um, artifacts. You know, they can allow people to imagine themselves into a different world under the sea, to to imagine themselves into the lives of the people involved in those shipwrecks. They're really magical artifacts that can take us into a different place yeah it really is the, the pictures are absolutely extraordinary and is it, they've excited the entire world you, you mentioned that this is an internationally protected wreck does that mean that it will it will remain forever on the sea floor or is there any plans or thoughts that the, the ship could actually be raised to the surface well, as far as I can understand it, under the International Arctic Treaty, it must not be disturbed. Okay. Nothing must be taken off it, So, unless there are changes to that. But in a sense, it's, you know, it, it's more magical to leave it there. You know, yeah. Being shut up to land means that more people can see them. But there are so many ways in which people can now experience a shipwreck through videos and, and even sound um, recordings so that blind people can even experience the sound of a shipwreck, although there probably isn't much sound 3,000 metres below the surface. Um, you know, the life that's growing on it, you know, it's it's got its own life now. And 
you know i think it, the magic is by by where it is i agree but with some you some people it, might want to change it and want to bring it up you know it's 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 all these things are subject to to change <laughs> Uh, certainly is. Well, thank you for sharing your excitement with this discovery. And this is uh, it, it's certainly one that has got attention around the world. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.